0: What's up everybody, welcome to the Pick 6 Podcast, Friday, July 27th, cruising into the weekend, hope you've had a great week, hope you're glad that football is back, this is our daily CBS Sports Podcast, if you're new here, I am your host, Will Brinson, bringing it Monday through Friday, every single day, from now until eternity, um, pretty exciting stuff. Anyway, everyone who rates, reviews, subscribes, greatly appreciated if you like the podcast and want to leave a note or a five-star review, that's great. If you don't want to leave a five-star review, you don't really have to leave a review, okay? Just just don't leave it. Um, if you have questions you want to ask me about fantasy stuff, send them to willbrinton at gmail.com or at willbrinton on Twitter. You can also follow the podcast at pick6pod on Twitter. Not much news out there, and we have a longer show today. Hopefully, it'll help get you through some yard work or some exercise or we're, you know sitting on the couch over the weekend, it is an awesome show. Warren Sharp of Sharp Football. Warren does a big preview every year, and it is analytics heavy, and he's got some great insight and information to what teams can do to be smarter. It will make you a smarter football fan, so dive into that in just a second. Very quickly, uh, some notable news, though. John Gruden reportedly has not talked to Khalil Mack since taking the Raiders job. Uh, By all accounts, this is not on John Gruden, who has tried to reach out. This is on Khalil Mack, who appears uninterested in speaking with John Gruden. Seems like there's some legitimate friction there. That could be bad news for the Raiders as they try to embark on Gruden's first year. Uh, Jarvis Landry said the Browns can win the Super Bowl this year if the team plays up to its potential. And he said... Um, it's something ridiculous about, like, if you're lucky, we won't score 40 points on you. I love this stuff in the offseason. Uh, Talvin Smith on the Jaguars, I think we're the best team in the league. And of course, the Jets are reportedly open to starting or trading Teddy Bridgewater. Either or, whatever works well. Uh, Jason, Jason, Jerry Jones actually also said that Jason Garrett's job is not in jeopardy, even if the Cowboys miss the playoffs. Little early for a vote of confidence, Jarrah. Uh, the Buccaneers said they won't commit to Jameis Winston as their starter after he gets back from his four-game suspension, which is just all kinds of hilarious. And also, of note, Jason Lockerfore has a good piece on Carson Wentz, who is back playing some football and uh looked comfortable out there for the Eagles. He's not on the pup list, which means that Carson Wentz should be eligible for full training camp activity Deshaun Watson a full go as well. We will have much more uh, news and notes coming to you next week as we continue to run through training camp items. In the meantime, let's go to talk to Warren Sharp of sharpfootballstats.com, sharp fo- sharpfootballanalysis.com and his great uh Warren Sharp football preview. All right, Warren, thanks for joining the podcast, man. I uh, I am uh I'm going to make a confession to you off the bat that I am still neck deep reading the Warren sharp 2018 football preview. And that is not, it, it, I, bl- I usually blame my family for my shortcomings when it comes to not being able to finish specific, certain tasks. i most of the way through, but in this case, I actually, I'm going to blame you a little bit because this preview is freaking loaded. Like it is, it is an in-depth monster of a preview. How many hours would you say it took you to put it together?
1: Man, well first of all, thanks for having me on the pod. I can't really even begin to state the, right. and quantify that, but I will say I started working about two weeks after the Super Bowl. Obviously, my as as with you, like most of our in depth uh work is done during the course of the season, so I'm going crazy preparing for the Super Bowl as well as, you know, the rest of the season. Once that hits, I take a couple weeks off and then I dive right in and it's it takes, you know, the better part of four or four months to get to that point. I had an editor this year. So Evan Silva helped uh, edit the 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 narrative and the yep. text and the team chapters. But for the everything else besides editing, I do myself. So from page layout and design to the graphics, uh to obviously all the detailed data and collecting it and then drafting all of the team chapters. You know, it it takes a lot of time and effort, but hey, I view it as I I need to prepare for the season anyways for the jobs that I have so uh I might as well share some of the research and things that I found with people and I use this as the conduit to do that.
0: Yeah, and I mean like I'll obviously tweet out a link to the to the Amazon place where people can check this out. You can go to sharpfootballanalysis.com and there's a, uh, a or is it yeah, yeah, I definitely see a link there where you can go and purchase the 2018 football preview and I highly recommend doing that like I said you could follow Warren at Sharp Football uh, on Twitter and I mean here's I guess my first question for you about the it is sort of a general question but I guess like if someone is wants to parse through the book cuz it's 253 pages loaded with graphics loaded with um content like you said loaded with analysis what's the best way for someone who might not have a full Vegas knowledge or full Vegas experience or an analytical a breadth of analytical knowledge and experience what's the best way to parse through it
1: well my opinion first you would want to take a look at uh, the preview the 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 forward which is written by Kevin Kelly of Pulaski Academy he's won I think seven state championships then you would want to go to uh, this one page article that Joe Banner who's been a 20-year uh, NFL executive read that to just get a better understanding as to why analytics are important um in the first place and and why teams there's a void where teams could be taking advantage of this more than they are and then i think you go to the the very first article that i have in there which is improving efficiency in pro football to kind of get my holistic perspective on the fact that teams are missing the boat in certain areas and here's why it's important why it matters what they could do to capitalize on it once you have some background on why analytics are important and why teams aren't taking advantage of them enough, you'll have a better appreciation as you go through on a chapter, team chapter by team chapter basis of why is he telling me this and what could be the benefit? And then I would just skip to like your favorite team, your favorite <laughs> yeah. team, check that out, go to your division, check out the teams that are in your division, see what I'm writing about them. And, and that's kind of the most, this the easiest way to kind of dip your toe into the pool and, Get
0: a sense of of what the preview has to offer, unless you're a Chargers fan. Don't just don't buy the book. I'm just
1: kidding. I mean, you should buy the I, yeah. If, if you're <laughs> there are some teams. I mean, I'm I definitely take a very um, even keeled approach. I do not like. Support any one team. I'm not a fan of a team. I don't hate any teams. Contrary to some people out there who think that I'm that I hate Joe Flacco and I hate all the things that a Raven like that's, that's not true whatsoever. I want the Ravens to be better, so they need to make more intelligent decisions. And I present things uh, in a as as black and white a manner as possible to try to just state the facts and opine on those facts as opposed to coming up with opinions that are based upon fandom or some theory that's unproven by data. Uh, the goal of this book is to share useful, actionable information with you that I think both fans as well as teams themselves would gain a benefit for, from reading and absorbing.
0: What uh, Along those lines, and I think I know what your answer is going to be for this, but what would, from a general sense as well, what is your biggest pet peeve that you have when looking at what NFL teams do on a regular basis that they, maybe in terms of like, in mostly in terms of in-game management and decisions they make uh, in the heat of battle, so to speak. Um, I, I think I know what the answer is, but I, but I'll let you, I'll let you go with it.
1: Yeah. It's, it's hard to find just one thing, you know, because there's so much that's pervasive throughout the course of a game that I get frustrated with when I, when I see it, the easiest thing that most people discuss is, fourth down decision making and our team should go for it more often on fourth down. And while that's true, and that definitely helped the Eagles last season, the fact of the matter is, is that fourth down decisions where you legitimately should be going for it as opposed to punting and or kicking a field goal don't happen very often in a game, a couple times, maybe once even on some sometimes for different teams, uh, whereas your decision on what to do on first and 10 yes. is massively more pervasive for a team. Or your decision as to who to target on third down and what type of personnel you're bringing onto the field. That's going to happen a lot more frequently and could affect the outcome of the game in far more of a manner than just that one time in the game where you should have gone for it on fourth down, but you didn't. Not that it's not that you should dismiss fourth down analytics is very important and teams need to optimize their decision making every chance that they can get in as many ways possible to try to stack those chips onto one another and build out the best effort for the game that they can get. But for me, if I had to choose one, it's, it's really that first down decision-making what are teams doing on first and 10, what types of plays are they calling there? Uh, Because that's just so pervasive throughout the course of the game. And it applies to all teams in the league. It applies to teams with good quarterbacks, teams with bad quarterbacks. Um, it's, It's just, Decision-making on first and 10, I think teams need to come out of the dark ages and embrace a little bit more of an efficient approach.
0: Yeah, that was, I have, here's what I have written down and I thought, that's what I thought you would answer. I was like, I feel like running on first down makes you shake your fist angrily to the sky. I'll tell you what really pissed me off when I was, I was reading the Bills chapter and it's like, you see most frequent play calls and under first down is like Mike Tolbert run. And so it's like, what, on. Cause I remember watching the Bills last year and you're, and like, you don't need to be a, um, analytical genius or, I mean, like, anybody who's watching the Bills utilize Mike Tolbert on first down should, can, can reasonably get angry in live time. And I remember getting angry in live time at the idea of, you know, I like Mike Tolbert. He's a nice guy and, uh, he's a great story and he's, a, he's a, he's funny cause he's a, a big bowling ball, but the Buffalo Bills don't need to be using him to run on first down, right? No, no,
1: absolutely not. And the Bills, there was something that was even more egregious and just frustrating with them last season, and that was the fact that on 82% of their second and tens after an incompletion on first and ten, they would run the ball. And those run plays were only successful 13% of the time. I mean, and and the reason why they were doing that is pretty simple. They pass the ball on first down and it's incomplete, and they know that we're in second and ten, what they're trying to do is to run the ball so that they don't go pass, 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 punt, and they they feel like they'll get mocked or, hey, we're, we need to establish the run, we're a running team. Why are we passing the ball three times and then punting it? But the reality is going 82% run on those situations is far too predictable, and it, the efficiency was horrendous there that it just makes you shake your head as to what is this team's goal? Is this team just looking to set themselves up with third and long. I mean, that's the, that's the end game result of running the ball on second and 10. And, and yet they could be taking two pass attempts to try to get a first down. Meanwhile, they're hoping to get themselves into a third and manageable or third and long situation. It's just, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So there's a number of things that Bills did, but absolutely. I mean, first, first down running. Look, the fact is, if you look over the course of the last 20 years, Teams are still running the football as often as they've as they did 20 years ago. And yet the reality of it is that passing has come a long way, especially the floor. The floor meaning yes. what's the worst case scenario here? The completion rate used to be 58% back 20 years ago. Now it's over 65% on first and 10 passes to start the game and the yards per attempt naturally is going to increase as well from 7.1 to 7.7. So the, the point is that passing is more advantageous. When you pass the ball on first and 10, you're passing against typically base personnel. So you have better matchups for your receivers. The defense has no idea. Are they going to pass? Or are they going to run here? And you can break tendencies of pass the ball a little bit more often. You're going to be attacking a defense that's less prepared to stop the pass, more prepared to stop the run. And it's just more efficient overall. That floor has risen over the last 20 years. Teams need to try to do that more often. Instead, it seems like teams' strategy is to help their quarterbacks by running on early downs, especially young quarterbacks. Let's run the ball on early downs to help our quarterback. What ends up happening then is you're setting your quarterback up with third and long. Now, what's more advantageous to throw the ball out of for a young quarterback? Is it first and 10 when the defense doesn't know what you're going to do? Or is it third and long when the defense knows that you have to pass? So that's, it's extremely frustrating. It, it sounds, um, like backwards thinking that you should pass more with a young quarterback on first down, but that's the reality of it. It's the easiest down to pass on in the NFL and more teams need to do that.
0: Yeah. And I think it's important too when you look at this. The, um, so like the two, just two, all right, two examples I would point out from, from reading your book and the, is, um, one, or actually the, so first, the, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Philadelphia Eagles, aggressive teams that, you know, I think, or I think teams with aggressive coaches and Higher-end quarterbacks in, in, in Ben Roethlisberger and Carson Wentz—they both uh, pass the ball on first down 56% of the time. And then you look at a team like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or a team like the Tennessee Titans, both who have young quarterbacks in Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota, and they pass the ball on first down uh, less than 50% of the time. And even when you look at the success rate, it's like it's not—it's you can't necessarily correlate the success rate of a run to the success rate of a pass, right? Because a pass could put you in second and three, and all of a sudden you have all those options available to you. But it just feels like, like you said, teams want to, it's like, all right, we're going to come out and set the tone by running the ball and and picking up five yards, and then we're ahead of the sticks. It's like if you pass the ball and you complete, even if it's just a slant, then all of a sudden not only have you – physically move the ball further than you probably would have on a run but you have psychologically sent a notice to your opponent that you are not afraid to be aggressive in a situation where they think you might be passive and these tendencies tend to tend to pop up over the course of a season right absolutely I mean
1: look even like the Philadelphia Eagles we know that they were a team that went for it more often than most teams on fourth down well what that allowed them to do is when the Defense realized, look, this team might take all four downs to get a first down here. What it allowed the Eagles to do is that on third and seven, even though they were really good at getting eight yards and converting on those third and longs like at a ridiculous rate, that's going to has to come back to earth a little bit this upcoming season. But what it allowed them to do is they could be more satisfied with gaining five yards if they needed to because they knew they were going to go for it on fourth and two. So on third and seven, whereas most defenses would typically have to defend to the sticks, you know, and, and beyond the Eagles could throw the ball well short of the sticks or have plays that come well short of the sticks that the defense doesn't think they're going to, Hey, on third and seven, the defense doesn't think we're going to run here, but you could call a run play and then convert on fourth and two. So there's just so many edges that it opens up, makes the defense have to think more. My goal, I mean, in a nutshell, the NFL is all about offensively don't let the defense know what you're going to do on a given play and the way that you can do that is to always stay on schedule so that the run and the pass is always available to you so that you never get into situations where you must become predictable and that's the biggest edge an offense can have over any defense is that the defense has to think hard and can often be wrong about what that offense is going to do and you're not going to Allow yourself to be on schedule and making these decisions if you get too conservative offensively. And it's all about being creative and keeping the defense on their toes, basically.
0: Yeah, and that that goes to something I think has been talked about a little bit this offseason maybe. I I can't remember where it was, but the idea that a sack is almost as bad as a turnover or having to punt, which is – I mean, I understand that it's not—it's you know, not like a, a strip sack is obviously worse than the sack, or a, an, a, an interception at the line of scrimmage is obviously worse than the sack. But what happens is, to, to to explain the concept a little bit differently, when you take a sack, you are putting yourself in a position where you're passing. <laughs> like if you're if you're second and fifteen, you're going to be passing. You're not, you know, you're probably not running out of that unless you can, uh, unless you have a really shifty running back who you can, you know, put in like a shotgun draw type of situation. But most of the time, you're going to be forced to pass, and the defense knows that, so they can key into what they want to do. Um, I want to ask a, a question about uh, sophomore quarterbacks because I thought this was really interesting in the Bears port, the Bears chapter of your book. Um, you note that sophomore slump, which is a phrase that I guess has been around for 500 years or whatever long, we just kind of use it. It's been the opposite of the case for a lot of quarterbacks, even quarterbacks like maybe Blake Bortles, who we don't tend to uh, give full respect to, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. There's uh, a notion out there that, you know, hey, this quarterback might have been bad, might have been okay his rookie year, but let's see what he's going to do this second year. But what we've seen is these guys in the modern football with the coaching and the off-season film study and the work that these guys can do, we're seeing big-time jumps in the off-season. And we need to really look at the teams that have have rookie quarterbacks from one year that are going into the next year. And really, like as analysts, place bigger expectations on what they're going to be in year two. A lot of people were so down on Jared Goff after his rookie year. He put up really poor numbers and didn't look very well. And people thought he might wash out of the league and I was actually higher on Goff after his rookie year having studied some of the numbers and dug into a little bit more what they were faced with as a team in LA the you know in 2016 so I had higher expectations for him in 2017 of course being paired with Sean McVay but I will tell you right now after seeing what he did last year I think a little bit worse of of uh, Jared Goff than most people because I think so much of what he did last season Mm -hmm. came at the benefit and because of designs from Sean McVay. But getting back to your point, absolutely, we're seeing these big-time jumps, and sometimes it comes with new head coaches, sometimes it does not. But I think we're definitely going to see something exciting with Mitch Trubisky in Chicago. I think Trubisky is poised with a more intelligent offense, I mean, you really can't make much more of a jump from a coaching perspective, at least you don't see it very often, from getting rid of John Fox and Dow Loggins and moving into like a, a Matt Nagy and Mark Helfrich style <laughs> offense, which is going to look at analytics, explore every single efficiency edge that they can get, throw so much stuff at the defense and just be so creative. And we saw Mitch Trubisky when he was put in certain situations, like asked to pass on first and ten, he was successful. When when uh Howard was asked to run the ball out of shotgun, he was really successful, but yet the team wasn't studying in-season success rates and using those things more. They kept with what their philosophy was, and that was, we're going to run the ball a ton, the most in the NFL on first and 10. We're not going to use a lot of shotgun when we run the football. Like These different things that weren't successful for them, they kept doing because that was their ideology and philosophy. Um, and I do expect... Trubisky to be one of the guys in his second season to take a big jump this year.
0: How, how does that apply the, the, the sophomore jump, as it were, to, um, somebody like a Patrick Mahomes who only played one game last season or, or, I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo feels a little bit like cheating, but he is kind of in his, you know, he hadn't even played a one full year yet. Um, you know, or even a Deshaun Watson who, who suffered an injury but looked very good. And, and by the way, I thought that one of the, Another fascinating thing that you see in this book, if you, if you check it out, I mean, you've checked it out. I'm speaking to the listener here, but, uh, like Deshaun Watson's, uh, the percentage of yardage that he picked up throwing to his right side versus his left side was fascinating. It's like 5% success rate or 5% of his yardage or something like that came on throws to the left. I mean, that's a separate question, I guess, but I, I just wonder about how those, um, how those sophomore quarterbacks who might not have a, a traditional season's worth of experience might fare?
1: Yeah, and that's a great question because um, I think it is different. Those are slightly different cases with all those guys. If you talk about Deshaun Watson, for that ble- brief glimpse of time that he was in there, oh, he was phenomenal. And I think that it's going to be difficult to replicate that in 2018 over the entire season worth of data. So that's going to be a challenge, but I do think that he can have a very good season Um, the offensive line is what could potentially hold him back there. But I'm excited to see what types of things Bill O'Brien is going to scheme up for him because I really like the adjustment he made in season to really emphasize some of the strengths that Watson had. And, of course, he didn't have as much of an opportunity to utilize that. With a guy like uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, that – everybody always says that it's typically two years in Kyle Shanahan's offense that you really start picking it up. You have one full year and then year two, you really expand upon that. And Jimmy didn't have a full year last season. He definitely didn't have off season work last season. So this is his first off season with the team. Um, but Um, He was another guy, right? They were five and O when he was in there. And while he wasn't putting up quite as, as ridiculous statistics as Deshaun Watson was doing, I mean, he was leading them to wins. And that was what was more important, probably, for their perspective, is winning games. Um, so I expect he's going to come down to earth a little bit from that win-loss record, of course. But uh, I think that we should be expecting really good things from Garoppolo um, in San Francisco. I just think that there's a slightly different situation there because, remember, when they were racking up their wins, they are playing – Basically, with absolutely nothing to lose, with so much energy and passion because they found their franchise quarterback midway through the season. And now we start in some games. And just the energy level that existed on the 49ers roster was so different than the opponents that they were playing week 14 and week 15 and week 16, who in many cases were out of the playoffs, not much left to play for. And then they're facing this team that's basically playing every game with like flying on and floating on clouds. So – uh that's uh, going to be a little bit of a different dynamic as well. But I do think that both of those players should take steps forward this year. I just think the production on the scoreboard from Jimmy's case, wins and losses from Deshaun's case in statistics, both are going to come back to earth a little bit this upcoming year, but that does not mean that they're not going to be as good or making progress in year two.
0: Uh, one of the one of the things, and we, you and I, tweeted back and forth about this. And again, you can follow Warren at, at Sharp Football. You can follow me at Will Brinson if you want. You should be following all of us jerks. Um, the uh, and the, the podcast at Pick Six Pod. One of the things we tweeted about, I think at some point this off season, was how involving strength of schedule. And you've done a really, I don't, I mean, I, I don't, I don't. It's, 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 it's obvious once you laid it out, but it was a really smart maneuver in calculating strength of schedule. You're like, I'm not going to base my strength of schedule for the coming season on how teams did the year before. I'm going to base it on what the really rich people in Vegas are assigning their win total to be, right? And, and then you, we, we talked about juice and how juice matters. Like if somebody is over six and a half, but the over is minus 170, I mean, they're expected to win seven games. Like they're charging you for that, for the opportunity to do something that is more than likely to happen, but because football is random, doesn't always happen. How much of success have you seen in your own model in the predictive ability of that strength of schedule based on Vegas totals? It's
1: definitely been more accurate than using the prior year win-loss record. And it, it only makes sense that it is more accurate sure. because you're using updated numbers that are counting for off season player movement, off season coaching hires, up, uh, any type of new injuries that have occurred. And none of that's incorporated if you just use prior year, uh, win loss record to determine your strength of schedule. And I found strength of schedule to be massively important, but in, in my own numbers and in my own work and my own predictions, uh, for the upcoming season. But the other thing that strength of schedule kind of gets discounted once the season starts, everybody starts moving on to just talking about the games and assuming that because it's the NFL and they roll out these schedules years in advance and everybody's playing each other in the division and you're playing other teams have finished in first place within if you finished in first place within your own conference, that that everything is somewhat equal and balanced. But the reality is that in season strength, the schedule is a massive edge that yeah. I take advantage of a lot. I have tools that the public can use up at sharkfootballstats.com, that are free to use, that can show you once the season starts which teams have faced the easiest quarterbacks, which quarterbacks have faced the easiest defenses. May you be facing an opponent this week who's dramatically different than the year-to-date schedule that you have faced up till that point in time. So um, in-season, strength of schedule is a massive untapped edge that not enough people take advantage of um, I certainly have utilized it a lot uh, successfully and you can utilize it more in a more detailed manner than just, oh, well, here's the strength of my opponents Um from like a win loss record or, or anything like that. You can look at it on the site as, you know, well, which teams have the easiest run defenses, which teams have played the teams that are the best at explosive rushing, which teams have played the teams that are the weakest at explosive Uh, passing, there's like 25 different metrics that you can choose from, including like passing to your running backs, which teams are better defending that than others. And I've used some of that for success even in the Super Bowl, uh, being able to predict, well, this team's faced a difficult schedule of uh, defenses against running back passes. And now they're facing a team that allows them a lot. And, you know, using props or just incorporating into my betting of the Super Bowl have had a lot of success there as well. So, um, I think people need to incorporate strength of schedule a little bit more, uh, into the in season stuff. But preseason, if you're going to look at strength of schedule, you absolutely must look at it in this manner as opposed to looking at prior year win loss records.
0: Yeah. And, and I think it's worth noting too, when you start talking about, like, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably like, anyone, anyone listening to this podcast probably likes to play daily fantasy football, you know, regular fantasy football, likes to put a bet down every now and then. Um, if you can figure out, like if you, I mean, by all means go to Wharton site and you can use, you know, if you can figure out when a team is going to struggle to stop running backs from catching passes, then you can use that to your ability. Let's say the, uh, I mean, hypothetically speaking, the Steelers stink because, you know, Ryan Shazier is out. They can't stop uh, running backs from catching passes. Well, Duke Johnson and Gio Bernard, are going to be cheap daily fantasy plays for you to utilize. Or you can roll them out there in a regular fantasy week as opposed to only in a PPR setting. And I think there's that's what people sort of lose track of, that in 2018, with all this information out there, like I think it's funny, right now is is the time when people talk about sleepers in fantasy football, there's no such thing as a sleeper anymore, right? I mean, everybody knows everything at this point.
1: Yeah, you've got to try to, and teams do this as well, some better than others, is... I look at everything possible that you possibly can to try to gain an edge because so many teams and, and with players playing daily fantasy, so much information exists out there that the consensus is smarter than it once was. And it's more and more difficult to gain those edges. So you've got to be looking at every place possible to try to find an edge and then figuring out the most intelligent way to incorporate that into your rosters each week or, your research for that upcoming week. So no doubt about it, uh, figuring out, you know, which, which teams may have the best matchup edges for specific players in a given week is extremely valuable. But it's, it's even more than just, uh, looking at who they've played this week. It's having that understanding of what have they played the last three games or over the course of the season to gain that uh, appreciation. Like they might play somebody that's tough this week. But yet if they played a tough schedule overall and they're still being productive, okay, we'll roll with them. If they're playing somebody that's tough this week after a very easy schedule year-to-date, especially, let's say, a, a run, a running back playing a run defense, and they've played a cake schedule year-to-date, and now they're playing a very difficult run defense, that's going to eat away at his production. It could make the team struggle more if they've been relying more on their running back for production. Their quarterback's not great. They'll have to throw more passing attempts. Um, so all these things can compound one another. So it's important to understand current opponent as well as strength of schedule year to date. And when you combine those two, it's going to give you even more of an edge. Um, I,
0: am I'm, I'm curious too. I, so I was, like, I like to snoop around people's stuff when I'm, when I'm doing a podcast with them. And I was on sharp football analysis and I noticed that, am I reading this correctly? You have a 77% hit rate since 20, since 2006 on overs for the season.
1: Well, those are,
0: th- that is true, but that is
1: just the, basically the most reliable, strongest overs. And what, gotcha. what the, and this is, this is full done, season overs,
0: right? Not, not the, not in, not game to game or week to week, right? Or is it? Well,
1: the, these are, these are weekly games. Okay. I'll tell you, like last year, I only had one that fell into my model that was as strong as, a true uh, a play of that category if you read back,
0: if you read the the preview you know what, i know what it is but i mean go ahead right so so back like a few
1: years ago and this would be like four to five years ago and 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 beyond that earlier in time it, it used to be easier to identify games that the odds makers from a totals perspective were just way off on really? and there were some games that are just like massive head scratchers and so i would be able to identify you know one of these a week at times, uh seven, eight, nine, ten uh, over the course of a season. And now it's much more difficult to find those plays that are slam dunk totally wrong because like everyone else, the odds makers have become more sophisticated and they've gotten better um over the course of time as well. So my overall the the my kind of calling card, what I do best is just my totals in general and the overs and unders of in of single games during the course of the season. And those are by far the, the most accurate since, uh, I've been doing it for 12 years now and I've hit 61%. Wow. And not only do they hit at a pretty high rate, but I mean, we'll move lines when I put the games out. We have a s- extreme market influence. I know a lot of sports book managers out in Las Vegas with my contacts out there and I go out there, uh, during the course of the season and in the off season and, meet with these people. So uh, they know me, they respect the games that I put out, our games move lines. And yet we still have a lot of success. And that's why I guess the bookmakers still continue to respect us. But it's difficult to hit at that rate. It's it's something that every single year, the sharp guys that I work with, some of the pro bettors who I consult for, every year, they're like, you're not going to be able to do this again. You're not going to be able to do this again. But yet. We're still able to continuously hit it those rates for totals and, and sides is obviously a little bit different bag. That's a little bit lower percentage. Right. Um, like in the 58% range, but for totals, that is like what I built my model when I was in college at engineering school. I worked on that model for four years before I started sharing the information publicly and I've been doing so for 12 years now. And. That's, that's my bread and butter. That's my baby right there is, is totals.
0: And, and by the way, if you purchase Warren's package, which you can, again, look at sharpfootballanalysis.com and I'm not going to, the, 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 price is not cheap, but if you're hitting a 60%, it's well worth it. I, I respect so much the fact that you've got a, you pay later. Like in other words, like I'm going to prove to you that this works and then, I mean, like, or bill me after the season. Like I think that is, that is literally putting your money where your mouth is in terms of, um, getting people to invest. And in. I, I think a lot of times you know, when people are offering analytics or picks, um, they don't do that. I, I got well, oh, Go ahead. Sorry. And the, the other
1: thing that I do is after every single game kicks off, I will actually, if you go to the records tab on my site, I will tweet out what the game, I will list what the game actually was. So if you're following sorry. me on Twitter, you'll be able to get tweets after kickoff as to what we were on. But if you go to that records tab after the game kicks off, it'll tell you the exact time I put this out to my clients, what line we took and what side we took and then I'll go back and grade them. So you see in black and white what the records are, um, uh, w- what games I took and how we did on that given day. And not every weekend is a winning weekend, right? Obviously, uh, I'm not hitting a hundred percent and the best guys in the industry are hoping to hit 55%. That means you're losing 45% of the time. And, uh, so not every single Sunday you're going to have a lot of success and some days are, are worse than others, but over the course of the season, I've been doing that for twelve years, never had a losing season, but I think it's very important to be able to post what you did so that people can see that so that you are documenting your record and that's what I do.
0: Uh I got two more two more team centric questions for you that I wanna in um first of all is the the Falcons. I noticed that you pointed out you point out in the chapter too, and you can't verify whether or not Steve Sarkeesian or anybody with Atlanta saw what you had written in the middle of last year. But all of a sudden, in week seven, right after you tweeted it out, the, the Falcons started taking early down deep shots to Julio Jones and their offense sort of took off. Uh, one, do you I mean, I'm assuming you don't think that was a coincidence, but two, is this something that can be sustainable over the full course of a season in terms of improving not only Julio's production, but Matt Ryan's production and the Falcons offense as a whole? I think
1: so, and I think the reason why is because I believe that Sarkisian came in there not having the level of experience. He probably wanted to just call some of the same plays that uh, worked for Kyle Shanahan and incorporate the same players, obviously. But the reality of it is like, you have to figure out the timing of it and the game strategy of it. And Kyle Shanahan was so good, just excelled at being able to do that. Whereas Sarkeesian really was like a lost puppy. I mean, I think the thing that flipped the switch was, remember, uh, I believe it was like fourth and one up in New England yeah. on, on the like the one yard a jet line. Jet
0: sweep. And, oh my God.
1: Paul's a jet sweep. Uh, I forget who, who, it was Taylor, Taylor Gabriel. Gabriel or somebody yeah, like yeah. that. It and he got Gabriel. tackled for a five yard loss. And it was just the most horrific play call that any team should do in the fourth, uh, on fourth down at the one yard line. Um, and, and after that point in time, I basically, I do a podcast, uh uh, live Periscope every Monday night before the Monday night game, and I lit them up with my (laughs) research about what they're screwing up with and what they need to do a little bit better, and lo and behold, they begin to get better. And again, I at that point, I didn't have any contacts there, so I don't know if they saw that or somebody passed it along to them, but they started to attack Julio down the field, as you mentioned, and I do think that coordinators learn. Coordinators, I mean... They don't, some of them don't get it as quickly as we would all like them to, but I don't think that he'll go back to using something that was inefficient when he first started there. I hope that what he saw as the season progressed, once they made some schematic and uh, tactical decisions that improved things, they would naturally roll that over into year two. That's my expectation. I couldn't understand or fathom why you would go the opposite direction, but you never know. Uh, but I would I would bet on them if I had to to continue to make more intelligent decisions as they finish the season with at the start of 2018.
0: Yeah. And I think Atlanta, too, I mean, you're talking about a, a team that is run by a GM and Thomas Di- Dimitrov, who uh you don't. You don't have to see him more than once to understand that he's probably analytically inclined. I mean, like, he's got a tweed, always wearing a tweed jacket and, and horn room glasses. I, lo- I love Dimitrov. <laughs> uh, but I mean, like, you can tell he's into analytics, so not to stereotype him. Uh, I'm gonna read really quickly the introduction for a team that I'm not gonna ask you about, but this is the funniest paragraph I've read, and it shouts to Evan Silva for, uh, for helping you craft this. I mean, I know you wrote it, but I credit the editing. Uh, this is the Cleveland Browns. What is the recipe for 0-16? In a large blender, add second-round rookie quarterback Deshaun Kaiser fresh out of the oven with heaping helpings of Hugh Jackson and Greg Williams. Blend thoroughly until mixed. Pour into a bucket and let marinate in the factory of sadness. Add a splash of Kevin Hogan. Garnish with a sprig of Cody Kessler. Serve at room temperature. That that that, that was That's very good writing. I like it. The team I want to ask you about, and I'll get you out of this, uh, the Dallas Cowboys, I think it was really interesting to, because there's a case to be made that it's good to get Jason Witten and Dez Bryant out of there for financial reasons as well as production reasons and, and what they can do on the field. But the thing that really stood out to me in what you wrote about them was no other non-quarterback beside Des and Witten played more than 65% uh, of the offensive snaps. I mean, that's, I mean, that, that's scary if you're the Cowboys and you're looking at what you're going to do on offense in 2018, right? I think it is.
1: I think I'm, I'm so intrigued to see what this team does because yeah. Um, unlike, you know, your, the opinions of Thomas Dimitrov and his, his style that he exemplifies, like we could see Jason Garrett clapping his hands on the sidelines that this guy doesn't seem like he's really incorporating a lot of analytics into his decision making. At least on the surface level, that's what it appears to be. And when you look at the run rate on first down, the, the difficult part for this team is that they are a run-based team. They have their most success running the football. And so why wouldn't you want to rely on that more? But take a look at what, for instance, a team like the New Orleans Saints did last year. The Saints ended up going much more run heavy on first down. They had some injuries at the offensive line. They didn't have as healthy receiving core as they had in some prior years. So they ran the ball a little bit more on first down and they produced well. But the interesting part about it is they actually found themselves passing the ball more often on second down and passing the ball more often on third down. So why would a team, as compared to the prior year, so why would a team that wants to become more run-heavy feel the need to pass more on second and third down? Well, the answer was, they had more yards to go on second and on third down. The reason why was because passes on first down are more productive and gain more yards than do rushes. And so they found themselves with more yards to go and had to pass the ball more often. And they actually finished, I believe it was 22nd in third down conversion rate last year. It was one of the only metrics that they did poorly in was third down conversion rate. And in part, that was because they had more yards to go than they've had in prior years where they were, you know, right up there in the top five in third down conversion rate. The same thing is happening In Dallas, Dallas wants to run the ball a lot on first down, and they're very good at doing so. But first and 10 passes is where Dak is at his best. He's at his worst on third and 10. He has a substantial drop-off in his efficiency passing the ball on third and 10. Now he's going to have to pass the ball on third and 10 without the old Mr. Reliable Jason Witten, who seems to be always there, and Des Bryant, who is up wasn't as great last season but is always on the field. So he's now going to have to convert these third downs without those two reliable targets for him. How well will he be able to do that? I think it's even more imperative. It sounds counterintuitive. But they need to be passing the ball more on first down this year more than ever. The reason because the defense is going to be playing to stop the run, they could pass over the top of that run defense, find edges in that perspective, set themselves up with third and more manageable where they don't have to rely as much on Dak. They can rely more on Ezekiel Elliott. And the other thing that would really increase their efficiency this year, especially with the losses of uh, Jason Witten and Des Bryant, is to simply throw the ball more to Ezekiel Elliott. This team does not want to throw the football hardly at all to the running backs, but it's such an edge in the NFL to throw the football to these guys on early downs. And they really need to try to target Ezekiel Elliott better and design some plays that will target him and maximize his efficiency in that respect, because they don't have great wide receivers. So, Get the ball more to Ezekiel Elliott. And the other thing it does, as an aside, is it will enhance his career. It will extend his career by not having to run the ball amongst all the big, heavy offensive and defensive linemen being tackled by the linebackers coming downhill at you. You want to be able to get this guy the ball in space off to the perimeter where he can size up whoever's coming to tackle him. He can put a move on that guy. He's not going to have big guys falling down at his uh, lower extremities at all times to potentially injure a knee or lower leg. Now you get to size up smaller guys, smaller framed guys, and attack them in space and be able to put moves on them. That will keep your running back healthy. And they need to really, my, my advice to Dallas this year, even with worse receiving options potentially, is try to throw the ball more on first down, get Zeke more involved in the pass game, and then try to run the ball more, on second and third and short yardage situations, I think that's going to overall help their offense, but they are definitely in a difficult situation from the perspective of talent and familiarity in the passing game, because like you mentioned, they just don't have it this year.
0: Yeah. I mean, Alan Hearns is their number one and you know, the whole Tavon Austin experiment is just odd, but I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, like Zeke Elliott's a great receiver out of the backfield. I mean, that's that's a, it's a strength of his. I mean, you know, He's not, he's not the best receiver out of the backfield, but he is a good receiver and it's something I agree completely. They got to take advantage of. All right, all right. One more question for you, then I'll let you go. I'm sorry for keeping you so long, but if you're pinpointing one team for a season total over, one team you think is being ignored, uh, maybe by Vegas, what would you, uh, who would you target if, if that's not outside, inside the scope of your, your paid, uh, your paid, paid? Oh level. yeah.
1: That's, that's okay. Um, no, the two, I'll give you two, um, uh, the one team that I personally, hit the heaviest was the Indianapolis Colts. And I did so back when everybody was talking about, I mean, you know, on Twitter, Will, like the running joke was 500 days since Andrew Luck threw a real football. He's doing nothing. Look, this guy's maybe never going to come back. And the running joke was just like how long it's been since he actually threw a football. And meanwhile, I look at this team and I saw a team that actually was leading, entering the fourth quarter in the majority of their games last Mm -hmm. season. That blew so many of their leads in the fourth quarter due to predictable play calling, which I detailed out in an article on my website and incorporated into the book. And they also were calling plays with Chuck Pagano's offensive system, with the number one running back being the -the over-the-hill Frank Gore. Like, it was just an outdated offense. And then to top it all off, they had Jacoby Brissett in there, who... Not that he was a bad quarterback, he took them to all these leads, but he came in there without any benefit of training camp. He was brought in one week before the season start. He didn't even know the offense. He couldn't even play week one because he didn't know enough about the offense yet. They went out to the Rams and got absolutely mauled by the Rams, and so Brissett had to come in there week two and just deal with it without the familiarity with the wide receivers or any of his position players. And by the way, you're going to be going up against the number three most difficult schedule of past defenses. And that's what he had to do. So personally, I did not care whether or not it was Andrew Luck or Jacoby Brissett wow. in there. I thought with the new coaching staff that they brought in, it's a, a better analytical look and style to the offense using more uh, advantageous types of decisions, where, where whether it's no huddle or hurry up or different personnel groupings and things of that nature, that this was a team that was going to have a distinct advantage under Frank Reich in 2018 as compared to the coaching staff before. And yet they were only favored in three games out of their first 15 by the odds makers. They were projected with a win total of six games. So I went over six. I took them in about four different uh, in-game bets over the course of the season, starting uh, with week seven, when they host the Buffalo Bills, they were only laying two points wow. at home to the Bills. And I thought, you know, the standard, as you know, is, is typically three points. And I thought that was tremendous value. And so I took them a number of times uh from that point onward and just single game wagers. And the sports book, actually, we had some issues with getting down as much as <laughs> we wanted to because they got so scared about who are these, you know, this is a very sharp account and there's no pun intended but a, a sharp account <laughs> that bets a lot that wins and they're loading up on the colts and so they took the games off the board they wouldn't let us bet they tried to move the lines on us and long story short but we were able to work with the sports book manager to get the lines back to where we wanted them because they want uh, our businesses still come sure. in there uh at this particular book many of them don't but these guys actually do things the right way. And we got everything lined back up. And so we could get the bets down at the lines that we wanted to. But uh I just think that, you know, and then you throw on the Andrew Luck potential. If if he comes back and is 100% or close to it, like there's no way, in my opinion, this team's only favored in three out of their first 15 games next season. So I thought there was a lot of value there. And then I'll give you one more. And that was the Chicago Bears. I thought the Bears, I mean, we talked about them earlier, yep. how this offense can come along. But the one thing we didn't talk about was Vic Fangio, who is one of my all-time most underrated defensive coordinators. I love what he's done in Chicago. Uh, this is his fourth year there, and they were lucky to get him back uh, under contract this upcoming season. I thought that was a great move for them. Uh, I love the fact that they've got Roquan Smith in there. They're making moves. They've brought in such a interesting uh, receiving core there. With you're talking about rookie Anthony Miller operating off the slot, plus Allen Robinson, plus Taylor Gabriel, you got a couple capable running backs. I think this offense is going to be very exciting. The most difficult thing that's working against them, which the Colts have to deal with as well, though, is a competitive division. Yeah. Just a very difficult uh, division. They play in the NFC North. The NFC conference in general is very difficult as well. Uh, but this is a team that put up five wins last year with a very antiquated system, they went two and six in one score games. So even if they pull that around, that's going to help them to get at least, you know, six to seven wins. And they didn't have any advantage from turnover department. We look at uh, guys like me, we look at turnover margin from last year, you know, were they winning some games because they were lucky in the turnover department um, or not? Because if you win the turnover battle in an individual game, you'll win about 80% of those games and they were plus zero on the season. So they had no edges from turnovers. They were in a bunch of close games that they ended up losing, and and yet they still won five games. I think the progress from Trubisky year one to year two factor in the new coaching staff, factor in a stronger defense, and a team that I think overall is poised to do very well. And keep in mind, they were the second most injured overall roster last season. So if they get some health luck that moves their way too, I think this is going to be a very exciting team for 2018 and, and one that we could look back at and say, and not be too surprised if they end up winning, you know, seven to nine games this year uh, whatsoever.
0: I'm, I'm with you on, I'm with you on both teams and the Colts, uh, for the, for those that are interested, at least from the Westgate, I've got those just offhand because they email them out to me. Uh, they opened at six and a half on the Westgate back in April. Um, the juice on the over was plus one ten Now, with this latest Andrew Luck news, the juice on the over minus one thirty I just checked it on an online sports book. Uh, for those that might dabble in that, and it's minus 160. So if you want to get the Colts, you're probably going to have to do it early. And I think that six and a half is a pretty good inflection point. Bears is basically the same as Warren noted. Uh, minus 130 when it opened in April, they're up to minus 150 to take the over there. And I'm with you. I think both teams are undervalued and can end up, uh, end up having nice seasons. All right, we got to get out of here. I kept you too long. Warren Sharp at Warren Sharp on Twitter, sharpfootballstats.com and sharpfootballanalysis.com. Uh, make sure and buy the preview. I'll tweet out a link. It's, it's as shock full of information as you might expect from this conversation. Thanks, man, for taking the time.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on. Love, love going through the games with you and the players. Uh, look forward to doing it again sometime.
0: For sure, man.